is uh, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose, chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on, on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the words of God. Blessed be the words of God. Thank you, Roy, for that. Um, John and I, at the beginning of a, of a book study, will often kind of parse the book out and then we'll break it up on a calendar. And uh, I really wasn't paying very much attention when he suggested that we swap Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and I said, fine. Uh, and then he artfully slid over uh, to, to Stephen, who uh, will be bringing a message here before long, uh, uh, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. So we know the areas where John feels soft, and I'm glad to, glad to shore up your lack of knowledge in that area. Um, thank you, Roy, for that, for that reading. Um, I think, you know, it could, be, it could be day one of Bible for you, and, and that's fine. It could be, you know, day, I don't know, whatever the years of your life are, times 365 of Bible for you. And I think this is one of those passages that often people come to because it's just so perplexing. And I want to just ease your mind um, that I don't have the answer if your question is, who are the Nephilim? You know, I'll give you the, uh, the salute. Uh, neither does anybody else. Anybody who says they definitively know is, uh, you know, maybe standing hard on something that the Bible doesn't speak that hard on. And so I wanted to ease your mind there. I'm not going to fix that problem for you. But the great news is, I don't actually think this is even about the Nephilim, and that's probably why we can't solve that problem very cleanly. Now, that said, I, I'm not going to escape and run away. We'll talk about kind of the primary views. There's two to four primary views um, that folks have on who these who these people may be. Um, also, I think there's, um, if you're uh, older, you'll get this. If you're younger, you won't, but I have something for you as well. Um, if you've ever played uh, the pen, pinball machine, right? There's those little knobs in there and the ball bounces all around on them. Um, and they're, they're kind of just designed to deflect and, and move the ball in different directions. I think there's some passages across scripture that give us a little bit of that kind of deflection, kind of give us some guardrails, um, if you will, some, some paths that we can stay within, some, some threads to kind of draw on to say, who are these Nephilim and what does this mean? And who are the sons of God, and who are all these people? And so at the end of our study today, one thing that I think will be important is to say that Genesis is not here to satisfy 
our every curiosity. Um, so anything that we might be interested in as we read the book of Genesis, Genesis is not there at our service to uh, answer those questions for us. Genesis is part of the 66 books of the canon of Scripture um, that God saw fit to give to us so that we could know him and know everything that we need for life, for godliness, reproof, doctrine, and training in righteousness. Um, and so we will get from this exactly what God intends. And I would submit to you that the Nephilim are a footnote on Genesis chapter 6. There's so much more here than whether or not angels or aliens or Canaanites or Sethites created this race of other people. So if you look at the first verse of Genesis chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took their wives they took as their wives any they chose. Now, if Genesis chapter 6 were actually Genesis chapter 1, and there was no Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5, then we could jump in here and start to go, who are the, who are the Nephilim and why do I need to know this? But it's not. It's Genesis chapter 6. And the rest of the other five chapters that came before it created an arc of a story that God saw fit that would be recorded in the book of Genesis. And so while we can certainly dive in and say, who are these Nephilim and, and we will, we're still on the arc of the story that the book of Genesis is presenting. And that book is so important to understand as God intended for it to be understood that we wouldn't want to become interested in something and unravel its purposes. You wouldn't do that with anything else, right? You wouldn't read a book about woodworking and, and get to a page that talked about some exotic wood and then put the book down and then go study this exotic wood and never learn the subject. It wouldn't be helpful. It would be an unhelpful side journey. And so we have to be cautious to make sure that we're using Scripture as Scripture is intended. We can go no further than the Scripture speaks we don't want to jump to any wild conclusions, right, and start running down those paths and play, well, what if or what about? It's a pointless game. Well, what, what if the sons of God were, were aliens and they came down and made an alien race of people? I mean, hey, what if, what if there's parallel universes all at the same time and we make all possible decisions, right? Why are we playing this game with Genesis chapter 6? The ultimate author of the Scripture is God. He used human authors to pen this book, and by his providence, it is divinely inspired. It says everything that God intends for it to say. It communicates everything that we need to know so that we may find him, so that we can understand what is sin, so that we can be safe in our worship, and so that we can live this life in meaningful ways and to the chief end of man, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the book of Genesis is not about satisfying my every curiosity. Um, that's looking to the scriptures to do our own personal will. It makes God be in our service. It makes him more like J.K. Rowling's than the sovereign creator of the universe. 
So far in our study of the book of Genesis, we've seen God's purposes for the book play out in front of us. God, we've seen, created Adam and Eve to reflect his character in the world. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They, Adam and Eve, we see are humanity's first representatives. They're our first, our first, the first folks on earth, our belly buttonless friends, are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have a functional understanding of good and evil from God because God understands good and evil, so they don't need to. They're protected from it. And, and that becomes this, this central issue in the book of Genesis is that the serpent creeps into the garden, apparently walking, not cursed to eat the dust of the ground quite yet, uh, walks into the garden, is speaking, talks to Eve, and suggests really that the word of God is holding something back. God doesn't want you to know good and evil. And this freshly minted creation exercises no capacity to understand that or think about that and, and does not operate in obedience, functionally not trusting God, doubting his word, and they eat. She eats because she's deceived. He eats because he's a lazy idiot and doesn't put the remote control down to be a leader. And so sin enters into the world. Their relationship has completely changed. Um, I again suggest that I think it took less than nine months for this first um, sin to occur in the garden. So I don't think they were around for, for that long before this happened. God, Genesis 1, takes a world that's formless and void and makes it into absolutely everything, creating life and creating order from nothing. And Adam and Eve then get their first charter in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God says to them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Okay, that's their job description. I would like to get that back. That was a sweet, sweet gig. I mean, I read Make Babies and Go Fishing. I mean, it's kind of my thing. That's, I mean, honestly, that's a sweet life. They're hanging out in the presence of God, enjoying everything that he has given them. That's Genesis chapter 1. This describes God, we've said, we, we noted that that describes God as, as Elohim, big, powerful, almighty God. Genesis chapter 2 retells the story of creation, presents God as a covenant God, He's their father, God, in Genesis chapter 2. We see a little bit more about what he does um, in, in creating man and woman in his own image. And this becomes important, the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, we understand in retrospect what it means to surely die after eating this tree. It was not poison. They didn't fall on the ground writhing in pain and, and 
die on the spot. Death entered into the world. The concept of death, of which there was no concept previous to this, the concept of death enters into the world because of their sin. They could have stayed in obedience to God and remained in his presence if they would trust him to hold the concept of the knowledge of good and evil. Or they could take that knowledge on themselves, declaring no need for God, and live in a world reflecting their own glory rather than God's. And that's where we live today. A world that reflects our own glory instead of God. It celebrates it. Now there's vestiges, there's still hints of the image of God in us. There's things that we do as people that just naturally carry the image of God in us. Our capacity to love, though corrupted, would be one. And because we have Genesis 1 and 2, we know that the big, powerful creator God came into covenant with us and cares for us personally. It's because we have Genesis 1 and 2. God starts us there so that we would understand who he is and that he has desire to have relationship with us. He's not spun the world up, right, like a, like a top and kind of thrown it out on the table and wherever it goes, it goes. He cares for it. He has sovereign purposes for it. He interacts with it. He steps into time and he impacts what occurs. And so the trajectory of the book of Genesis becomes very important because it is how God has chosen to describe to us himself and everything that we need to know. In Genesis 3, we see the fall. And so there's a transition into Genesis chapter 3. We've seen both sides of God. Now, God is ready for us to see how sin enters into the world. This is the arc of the book of Genesis. In fact, Genesis, the first 11 chapters about Genesis talk to us about God and the world. And then the remainder of the book of Genesis, 12 through 50, talks about God and Abraham's family. He chooses, he chooses, chooses one family to tell the rest of the story through and constantly reminds them of the promise that he has, the covenant that he has This is the arc of the book of Genesis, and this is what we are to see. Remember that we said in Genesis, as God is creating everything seven times, he says it's good. And in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, we read that it is very good. This is God's intention for everything, is for it to be very good, for it to reflect his glory. It's us that comes into it and corrupts things. And so when, when calamity falls, when some major event happens, when the World Trade Centers fall down and people ask, well, why did God allow that? Because God allows sin in the world because he allows us to exist for a time so that we might find him, repent, be saved, and then he will tear this whole place down and then he will rebuild it to his glory. New heavens, new earth. Revelation chapter 4 and 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so that design, that design in creation is that it would bring God's glory to bear to people. Now, With sin entering into the world, as we're seeing happen in Genesis 3, humanity has taken on the job of defining good 
and evil. And we did a terrible job of that. God was doing just fine. Thank you. We decided we would like to be trusted with the knowledge of good and evil. And so we've done really well on the evil side. We have war machines. I just watched a DARPA video the other day where there's this, uh, you know, everybody, people came up with drones. And so now there's like drone defense and they have these little, little, little missiles that go up and they have little helicopters and they follow a drone and they start tracking it and then they fling some kind of, looks like paint at it to land on the propellers and then take them down. Uh, we have machines that are designed to injure, murder, maim. Uh, we choose calibers that injure rather than immediately kill because it takes uh, two, two people out, right? It takes one person to care for an injured person. And so we've become very good. We have a war college right up the street here in, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And um, I would submit to you as Americans that we're, we're pretty good at war. I don't, we've never lost in our away colors. In fact, we're so good, we even beat ourselves one time. And so these things exist in the world because of evil. They're necessary because of evil. This is not God's good design. There are no wars where God is recognized as the rightful Lord and King. He defines good. And so then the result of sin, the result of stepping outside of God's good care and plan for us is family strife, is hatred, is wars, it's the chaos of society. You don't have to look long or hard before you see the, the scar, the scarring of sin, before you see chaos, before you see calamity. It's in the world all around us. I mean, turn on the news or look at your Twitter feed. It's everywhere. This is because sin entered in the world because we wanted that knowledge of good and evil, not really knowing what that knowledge was or what it would do. And so Adam and Eve then have to leave the garden, have to leave God's presence Sin is now a part of who they are. We'll see in a little bit, it materially impacts who Adam is. In fact, so much so that everyone that's born after him is a part of that original sin. The fabric of humanity is just broken. So they'll leave the garden. And we learn of their first children, Cain and Abel. And then immediately the traits of this new world of self-rule and definition of good and evil start to play out through, through these boys. And we're following this trajectory of the book of Genesis. It's a very purposeful telling. It's zooming in on the things that we need to know. It's making sure that we're following the arc of the story that's going to lead us exactly where God needs us to be. This is not some exhaustive record of every single person's life. It doesn't talk about all the things that they did. It doesn't say they woke up in the morning, they made some crab cakes, and here's how they made them, and here's the recipe. Imagine how long the Bible would be. I mean, you know, I think sometimes you, you, some of you may have the, you know, an audio, audible Bible. How do people read that? You ever wonder, like, how long does that take? How long do you have to sit in the studio to do that? You know, they're not, I don't know if you've noticed, they're not saying, uh, uh, in there. Nobody's cutting that out. Um, you imagine what your voice would feel like after reading that much Bible for an audio Bible translation? And so it tells us the things that we need to know, not absolutely all the things that were happening. So we see the fall, and now we come to chapter 4, where what it draws us into is the, the, the line of, of Seth. And this line is going to be traced all the way through the Scriptures, all the way to Christ. This is very purposeful. God is ensuring that we see this line come all the way through Scripture. 
Also, interestingly, in Genesis chapter 4, we meet this dude named Lamech. Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, Lamech said to his wives, it's like Cody, apparently, from that TV show, if you know, you know. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. Now listen to what he's happy about. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seven, uh, excuse me, seventy-sevenfold. So we're starting to see very early on that things are rough in this early world of Genesis. Sin's impact becomes immediately apparent. Families are against each other. People are killing each other. Um, this is the background that we're being given, and it's leading up to something. Humanity now in Genesis chapter 4 is just groping to find their way, defining their own personal good, which is, generally speaking, a concept that tends to work for the individual's own benefit. And there's no collective good. It's not some sort of uh, communism that people fall into. Everyone is out for themselves probably, you know, buy a house in the Bahamas and all live together. And, you know, if if they're going to go broke, they make sure that they transfer a lot of that money out first so that everybody else gets hosed, but they're totally fine. This is the kind of world that sin creates. So we've got this humanity now in Genesis chapter 4 who's now even starting to get boastful over how awful they are. killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, just killed them. And this is like, hey, gather around. Gather around, let me tell you about how great I am. I killed someone who just hurt me. So then chapter 5 comes, and it gives us then a lineage of Adam's descendants through Seth, reminding us of the human origins in Adam. Right. So it goes back, make sure we know everyone is from Adam, and this line continues out from Adam with God's likeness passing on from person to person. And so we have this humanity that has God's image and likeness in a way, but we're violent and we're separated from him and we're royally messing things up. Within a few generations, this everything is shattered. This is where we find Genesis chapter 6. And that's why I say the Bible doesn't start here. This is not Genesis chapter 1. This isn't where the story starts. The arc of the story lets us know who God is and how great he is. It lets us know that the first man, Adam, is who we are definitely connected to. It lets us see how the fall happened, what the fall was, what immediately occurred after the fall. Note, God doesn't come in and say, well, you're going to feel guilty. They immediately felt it. Everything changed when they stopped having faith, trust, and hope in God. Everything completely changed from that moment on. And so we're following the trajectory of Genesis through creation, through the fall, into ramifications. We're following the line of Seth, and now we're here. And so the trajectory then of this story does not play into who are the Nephilim, right? That's like some National Geographic or Omega Code level interest. Let's just find something weird and obscure and let's obsess over that 
and let's not pay attention to what the trajectory of the text is actually trying to do. Let's not pay attention to creation. Let's not pay attention to the fall. Let's not pay attention to the grace, goodness, and mercy of God. Let's not pay attention to repentance and turning. Let's not pay attention to obedience. Let's ask, who are the big people? It's a distraction. Genesis chapter 6 gives us the final picture that we're going to need before we get to Genesis chapter 7 of unchecked humanity chasing after their own definition of good and evil. And so there's a tension between the people of Genesis chapter 4, 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod in the east of Eden. And the people described by Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, that says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth, also a son, was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the point of Genesis chapter 6, that we understand exactly how terrible everything was, how awful things got, and how quickly things got out of hand. Now for us, who are post-cross, meaning we live in a time where Christ has come, sin has been paid for on the cross, uh, we can see that we're fallen short of God's glory, we can repent of our sins, Christ is there as the lasting sacrificial lamb, um, and then he becomes our once and final payment, and by God's grace, we live in a time where we have the full counsel of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, and we can understand how Scripture has described the situation over time. And so we have the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 28, that helps us get a better understanding of what it means to be a person. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And that's because humanity is in Adam. We, don't, we aren't born and we're in some kind of a sinless state and we have the opportunity to not partake in the knowledge of good and evil. We are in a world where the knowledge of good and evil is apparent and around every day. If you have or have had babies, you know it's true. As long as they're more than a couple days old, they get born, they have that new baby smell, that new person smell. It's kind of like a car. They're nice and fun and then they're really mean to you, right? They scratch your cornea, um, they see a neat-looking watch on your wrist, and they would rip your arm off to take it if they were strong enough, which is why I think, by God's grace, he makes babies kind of weak and not coordinated. So you can teach them over time. I mean, how, how many parents have said, no, no, we don't hit? 
Um, I know one of the one of the first things that we taught my my oldest about our our second oldest was don't pull on the baby's eyes. All humanity is in Adam. And so that's why we, when we read of Seth's birth, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. He was born in Adam's own likeness and after Adam's image, just like all of us are. We're all connected back to Adam, and that's so important. And Genesis pulls that through, makes sure that we seize it, makes sure that we know we are we are fallen short of God's glory. Every single person, everyone, there's not a person who isn't fallen short of the glory of God. The book of Romans makes that plainly clear. And all over Scripture, even the people that exist as you know, heroes of the faith are grossly flawed people. born in Adam's own likeness and after his image. So there's this vestige still of the image of God in every single one of us. We know the law is written on our hearts. But it's marred by the consequences of sin. And so that sin-sick image follows in each one of us. Paul would lament that about himself. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why God is so graceful in salvation. He doesn't say, perform well, and I'll love you, and I'll accept you. He says, understand that you are but dust. See the great cost of my son's payment for your sin. Have faith in him. Have faith in that. Have faith in my message. Follow after Christ as Lord and you will be with me forever. It undoes the original sin, trusting in Christ. That's why Pastor John spoke this morning, there's no, there's no sinner's prayer. Now, people who are sin-sick, fallen, pray, and repentance. But it's not a series of magical words. It's not an incantation. There are no right words, just like there are, well, let me not say there are no wrong words. It describes a broken spirit and a contrite heart who sees Christ as glorious because he made payment for sin. John chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. And if, 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 again, if, it's, if you've been around the Bible for a bit, maybe you know where it goes from there, but the guy employs this um, uh, comedic method called um, sarcasm and says, well, am I supposed to crawl up in my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, hey, buddy, stop it. You got to be born again. Why? Because we are born in Adam's likeness. We're born in sin. And so he describes a rebirth in the second Adam, in himself, by way of repentance, turning from our sin. And when you turn from something, you want to do the 180 because the 360 puts you right back where you were. And so now you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting Christ. He's, he's everything. God is everything. God's glory is everything. 
And when that is true, you're superhuman. When, when God is everything, then that means everything else is nothing. That means all of the distractions of your life, all of the distractions of work, it's not that they're unimportant. It's just when compared to the glory of God, they're nothing. And that will enable you to endure everything. That's why the scriptures refers to us as being pressed on all sides, but not crushed, because we have Christ and he's our great worth. How disappointing would it be if your work was everything? I don't know about you. Maybe you have some particularly cool work. My work is completely uninspired and disinterested. Um, if that was everything, and functionally, we have some of us have to be careful. Some of us really like to sip on workahol, and work can become everything. The next promotion can, can become so important, but it's nothing. I remember a friend of mine one time uh, shared a letter that a guy from his company wrote about having spent a lifetime there writing software and how great it was. And I was thinking, man, what a dumb thing. Like, if that's just the sum total of everything was that I kept my in email inbox to zero, just off me now. But God he makes it so much more because we're born into a dire situation. I mean, beyond call 911. I mean, beyond be desperate and be frantic. It is dire. And so Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. Because we're in a dire situation until that occurs. And if in yourself that hasn't occurred, you're in a dire situation. If you can't say, I have... Christ is my advocate before a holy and righteous God, then you are part of those who are dead in sin, in trespass. There's no other way. There's no plan B. There is only plan Jesus, and there's nothing else. No other way to God except through the man, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes Judgment. Judgment comes because we learn in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin are death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Genesis chapter 6 offers a a low point, perhaps, a, a high watermark, maybe, of sin in the world. But with this tension of redemption and this recognition of the people that come through Seth, and without the transition of Genesis chapter 6, without that high watermark, it is going to be very difficult to understand the story of the flood. If I pick up my Bible and I read that God created everything very good, and then they ate the fruit of the garden tree that was labeled good and evil, and then some brothers were born, one of them killed another one, and then there was this weird dude, Lamech, and he thought it was awesome that he was a murderer. And then we're all found in Adam, and then God drowned everybody. Something's missing. Even if you tuck in there that maybe there were some weird like angel people who were tall, there's still something missing from the story. 
And so we have to understand that the arc of the story is God describing to us why he played things out the way that he did. Almost that we see that humanity had every possible option, but was incapable of exercising that option. We were incapable of obedience in spite of tons and tons and tons of patience, tons of opportunity. But here's the beautiful thing. God wasn't surprised by it. It's not like he said, okay, let me give them another chance and we'll see if this works. And he kept trying something and we would mess up and trying something and we would mess up. It's there for it's there because of his grace that we can see all of this. So that when Jesus would say, God, if there's, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was excited about going to the cross. Um, I recently got this really weird email from Cornell, like the university that uh, Andy went to. Go Bears. And in that email, it said, learn, learn leadership from the Romans. I was, were they like particularly well known for their leadership skills? And down in there, it talked about employing humor. I'm like, when I think of the Romans, like I'm not thinking about funny, skilled leaders who are really good at sowing culture into an organization. So I don't know where all that came from. I know they were great at torture and heavy-handed control. I know that scourging of Christ required that his body be laid over the equivalence of a log and ripping flesh off of his body with backwards pulled whips that are just ripping chunks of skin. People were known to be able to visually see organs inside someone's body. This is what Christ faced, and God used that as his wrath against the sins of the elect. That's incredible. And so God, by his grace, allows us to see this entire story in a very purposeful way so that we will understand the high cost it takes to redeem us. I think God allows us to be born as cute babies and then see the toddler phase. Because if you watch the news or listen to stories, you think toddlers are cute. They aren't. They're awful creatures. They blow snot bubbles. They're mean. They throw tantrums. They say some of the most ridiculous stuff in public. Um, I remember one time walking with my son uh, outside of a, a place down in South Florida, and there was a, a man who was of a large size sitting on a bench. And as we walked by, timing it perfectly so that I could know who he was talking about, as we're standing right next to him, he looks at me and says, Daddy, why is he so fat? God allows us to see the full spectrum of becoming an adult so that we can start to get a little bit of an understanding of what is his patience and what is his mercy and what is his grace. You ever seen pictures with toddler babies where like there's a, someone's living room and it's covered in paint and then there's a naked little baby also covered in paint. This is the smallest degree of what we're like as people. Um, imagine uh, for whatever reason God calls you and he says, I want you to come up on this mountain and I'm going to tell you how people should live. You spend time up there in God's presence. You, you receive the law. You realize it's a reflection of God's character. You come down and everybody's made a golden cow and they're worshiping it. <laughs> you imagine how furious that would make you feel 
Now think how much more God. You know how resistant we are. How we were just just sin mongers. The stuff that we create and do and say and feel and think we're sick. And God is so good to us to offer us a way to be redeemed. And even more than that, you see, His call is effective. There is no single person that God says, I will redeem them. You, you, will, you will respond to my call. And they say, eh, I'm good. God's calling is effective. John chapter 6, verse 44. If you struggle with the effectiveness of God's call, camp here and spend some time. Um, for some people, I know some people, your favorite thing to do is to argue about election and God's sovereignty and the doctrines of grace. And I know you think heaven's just going to be one theological debate. It won't. Everyone's in, everyone in heaven knows everything already. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. It's not discussing a lack of effort, meaning they didn't try hard enough to get to the Father. It's talking about a lack of ability. No man can come to me. They must be drawn. And Jesus has a 100% success rate in raising them on the last day. Speaking from a future perspective, I will raise him up on the last day. Well, but Jesus, what if they decide not to follow you anymore? I will raise him up on the last day. If you struggle with that, me too. But there it is. This is God's utter grace in salvation. Nothing earned. No merit. It's not Jesus' grace plus you worked really hard from that point on. That you have held on to Him so tightly that you really, frankly, deserve to be here. Nope, because then we would boast. And then it's not grace. If we get a heavenly enough perspective, we will be absolutely earthly good. Because it's all, salvation is all of God. If it wasn't, we could boast. And so I say, when we understand the trajectory of the book of Genesis and we see the high cost of salvation, everything in this life becomes tertiary at best. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also, afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So who are the Nephilim? We have to start from saying the Bible does not fully tell us who the Nephilim are. There's, I would say, two main schools of thought, um, probably four, but at least two really high-level schools of thought with some variations. Um, number one would be sons of Seth. Number two 
would be fallen angels, the, the children of, of fallen angels. So sons of Seth. Um, this would describe Seth's descendants as having preferred the women who came from Cain's line and in creating children and taking them as wives, then they created this group of people, this race of people, this branch of genetic material that became described here as Nephilim. Um, there are places where God's covenant people are referred to as, as his sons, not exactly the same language that we see here, but described as sons of God. You can find that in Deuteronomy 14 and, and Jeremiah 3. Um, there are some helpful things about this theory. It gives a little bit of a, of a helpful backdrop um, in the story. There was later then some expressed inability to intermarry with the, the Canaanite gals in Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 34. So there's a bit of a thread to pull on there, but that's not my go-to. Um, mine is a variation of the, of the fallen angels. It says that the uh, sons of God are the fallen angels. And you see that as a, as a direct way of referring to them. You see that in, in Job in a lot of different places. Uh, Job 1, Job 2, Job 38. We see the angels being described in this way. And then the idea then becomes that these, these angel dudes, um, I'm trying to avoid saying things I got with, but the, the angel dudes had relations with the women and the babies that were born were these huge like Nephilim people because they had like half angel blood, right? And so in my mind, they're like, it's like, uh, I think they're like pan creatures, um, that is very problematic for me for lots of reasons. Number one, if the number of angels is fixed, why did God give them make more baby parts? Tracking? Um, and not only that, why did they seemingly function to make babies? There's a lot of specific stuff that has to happen in order for a baby to be produced through sexual relations. Why would God create the angels with all that equipage? Now, am I saying they didn't have that equipage? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just saying it's just, it's hard for me. Um, I mentioned some bumpers, right? Whether or not something's difficult for me to believe, that and a dollar will get you any size drink you want from McDonald's. Kind of take the LeVar Burton path here, right? Read the book yourself. So Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30 provides a helpful bumper, like a pinball game or like a guardrail. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. So this gives some kind of precedent to say that angels interact differently. They're not given, they're not taken in marriage, they're not partaking in these things. Now, we are describing the fallen angels, some portion of those angels who uh, have decided to not be in service to God. Luke 20, verse 35, to not take one instance in Scripture and try to make doctrine from it. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So this concept that is being described kind of makes me start to lean a bit away from the fallen angels, but I am still, uh, am still in that camp. Um, so how do I stay in that camp knowing that perhaps angels aren't equipped in that way and they don't give and take in marriage. 
Um, there's, this is not unique to me. This is a known school, and I think several good folks are in it. Um, and I would also say that several good folks are in totally other schools. Several good folks are in the kind of Seth theory school. Uh, several good folks believe that it was the fallen angels that had direct relations with the women, and, and then the Nephilim uh, came to be in that way. Um, I have a hard time settling there, and so the, the variation uh, that I tend towards um, is drawing on the concept that's in John chapter 13, and verse 27. And that is that Satan entered into Judas to do his own, Satan's own will. Uh, and so what would that look like? That would look like these uh, angels, read demons, entering into men from a certain group of people, probably very much like Lamech, uh, so meaning like total dirtbag, jerk, brutish kinds of people. Um, and through that demonic influence, having sex with whomever they wanted, creating a line of people who was specifically designed to work against God, generally described then as Nephilim. I think there's more, more precedent for that argument than others. It holds a lot more water for me. Uh, your mileage may vary. You can go a different way, and if you want to argue with me about it, just write it in an email and send it to devnull. That'd be a great place for that argument to go with me because I'm not interested in the subject. So. Um, I mean, I do have more thoughts on it, but they're all extra biblical, so I won't bring them out. So the point, then, of Genesis chapter 6 and the Nephilim is a footnote in history. So if this Nephilim was some kind of a master plan to try to create another group of people who would be resistant to God's plan. It's interesting to me that it is a small footnote here because that is the result of every plan to try to work against the sovereign will of God. That will be the result of the Tower of Babel. That is the result of, of Satan's um, entering sin into the world at all to begin with. It will all become a footnote on history when God destroys everything, gathers together his kingdom in new heaven, new earth, and it's all redeemed people who all now know that election was real. More bumpers that are helpful for this passage. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, and if you want to zone in, it would be specifically verses 18 through 22. Talks about spirits in prison that were disobedient in Noah's day. So if that is connected to Genesis 6... And then related to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 10, with reference to angels. Um, we've got bumpers in 1 Peter 3 that point to Genesis 6. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Um, and maybe with the second Peter chapter two, verse four reference talks about uh, a working to pollute a godly line. If we can follow the time box that first Peter chapter two and verse five uh, seems to have around Genesis chapter six. And so then angels would be bound to not function in this way again. That's what that locking them up kind of a thing is, is they're bound to no longer do this kind of activity. They're blocked off from being able to do this. Um, also, Jude, book of Jude, Jude 6 through 7, we'll, we'll read together. 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so, this footnote of the Nephilim, along with the whole of Genesis chapter 6, with these bumper passages in tow, points forward to a problem that requires a fix, and that is that sin is ravaging in the hearts of men who are in Adam's kind and likeness. And so rebirth is the only fix. Humanity is impossibly corrupted. And so it takes something like, or exactly it takes, the sacrificial lamb Christ who died once for sin, who was like us and always living just without sin. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There are popular atheists, who are either dead or will be soon, who like to portray God as some kind of a judgmental sky monster who just goes around killing people. And that's apparently because they don't actually read what the Bible says. He talks about being deeply grieved and regretful. God is not impersonal. He is not uninvolved. All of the awful things that people see in the world and identify are things that work against him. That's why John chapter 3, 16 through 19 talks about us as loving the darkness more than the light. Our hearts are impossibly wicked. Our hearts love anything but God and his purposes. That's why it takes a miracle for salvation. It takes an effective call. There are none seeking after God. Not one. And so if your whole understanding of the way that salvation uh, comes to be is that someone has to be seeking after God, you have a really big problem with the Bible because none seeks after God. No, not one. And that's consistent with John chapter 6 and verse 44 that says no one can come unless they're called. So don't let the footnote of the Nephilim become a problem or a dogmatic obsession. They're there to point forward to a dire problem which must be solved and to allow us to see a tremendous and grateful redeeming God who gives us even the ability to come to him, who gives us his son, who planned this way for us, who by his grace gave us 66 books to see the entire story so that we wouldn't say, well, what if we just had another chance? Well, what if he just wrote the law down and we could follow it? Our reaction to Genesis chapter 6 should not be, tell me more about these Nephilim. Our reaction to Genesis chapter 6 
should be that our God, who created everything very good, who was in direct communication with humans in his image, will restore it that way. Revelation 21.4, a time with no hunger, no tears, no pain. Things that we saw even during Jesus' earthly ministry, feeding of the 5,000, a time where he would heal bodily ailments. What a wonderful and awesome God. Genesis chapter 6 should encourage us that in spite of every possible opportunity, Humanity could not be obedient to God and was never expected to. That's why he sent the man Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer today, I pray that you are re-encouraged through Genesis chapter 6 and how great salvation is and how great God is. If you're not a believer, I pray that you see that God's aim in Scripture, God's aim in creation was never that you become obedient enough to be a part of his club His aim is that you would see that you are materially attached to Adam and can do nothing of your own accord but sin. And by his grace, he calls and salvation is there ready and apparent and available. And so his gospel message is is one of an offer, a, a unilateral covenant. Turn from your sin Trust in Christ to be the payment and you will be His forever. That is His promise. And if you can't trust a promise from God, then you're just not understanding His promises. So if that describes you, if you have not seen yourself as a sin-sick, fallen creature who is in need of salvation, I pray that God enables you to do that this morning. I pray that you would see the offer of his justice and his mercy all resolved on the wonderful person of Christ and that you would turn and be saved from this day forward. Join me, let's pray. Great God, we do thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the entire message of scripture. God, thank you for faithful people who came before us, who preached the gospel, who shared the message, who discipled us. And we pray for those same opportunities. We pray that as we go out from here this week, we would be excited to tell of your goodness and your mercy and your grace, God, that we would live in ways that bring you the glory and honor due to your name. God, if there would be anyone here hearing your message for the first time, I pray that you save them. And God, for those of us who have believed for some time, I pray that we're re-encouraged to be in your word. I pray that we're re-encouraged by your grace and mercy. And God, I pray that we're re-encouraged to celebrate as your covenant people because we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.